There's a lot of machine learning and artificial intelligence terminology that most people in tech can nod their head at and sound like they're on the right page without maybe really understanding the concept itself. Decision trees, deep learning, throw the word Bayesian in front of anything. Any of those various and sundry terms used a lot, thrown around a lot, probably interspersed in articles on Wired and TechCrunch, possibly out of context. A lot of the time, they're not all that well understood. One such term is tuning, to tune an algorithm. What is it to tune an algorithm? How does tuning matter? And what are the best approaches for tuning that are being developed now or available now? That's the topic of this interview on the Tech Emergency Podcast. Joining us today is the CEO and co-founder of SIGOPT here in San Francisco, Scott Clark. Scott got his PhD in applied math at Cornell. He was working on large biology data sets there and then spent a quarter of a decade at Yelp working on their advertising algorithms before spinning off to SIGOPT. Scott takes the time to explain to us what the dynamic of tuning really is about. He uses some good analogies that help to understand what tuning means and why it's valuable, and then goes into what are some of the more modern methods for getting tuning done and what kind of advice he would have for folks who have machine learning algorithms that are in, that are live and working now today. How do we continue to refine and tune and adjust those? Where's the low-hanging fruit often for gleaning greater results from current working algorithms? So without further ado, we'll roll into this interview with Scott from SIGOP. Scott, first things first, tuning a machine learning model. This was a lot of your own graduate school work. It's a lot of what you do now. A lot of folks are familiar with the notion of weights in in a machine learning model. They're familiar with the term tuning. How do you, in layman's terms, sort of define what tuning is in machine learning and you know get folks with maybe a business background to understand the concept? Definitely. So every machine learning model is attempting to take a bunch of data about something like fraud, or maybe it's stock market data or something like that, and learn some structure or some rules about that data in order to make some decision or some prediction about what the future may entail. All of these machine learning algorithms have these tunable parameters that affect how they go about learning these structures or rules or whatever it may be. These are called hyperparameters or parameters of the model itself. It could be something like the number of trees within a decision tree-based algorithm, the number of layers in a deep learning system, but they tend to crop up in every single machine learning algorithm. And they have a huge effect into how quickly and how accurately these machine learning systems are able to extract that information and provide this model, which hopefully in turn provides business value to whoever's building it. Just to kind of put a finger on that, I love to kind of get get the mental image in your head into the heads of the folks who are tuned in. We talk about meta parameters in, in some regard. Maybe there's a particular business problem where you could kind of make an analogy of what those might be, whether we're talking about a decision tree or whatever model we might be leveraging, maybe in finance or, or a domain where you do a lot of work. What might those be in a real world example? Yeah. So they tend to crop up all over the place. So it could be the number of trees in a random forest, the kernel of a support vector machine, the learning rate of a deep learning system. But it could also be features or parameters that affect how you're actually ingesting the data into the machine learning algorithm. So you could imagine in a stock trading algorithmic trading strategy, you may want to look at some trailing average of specific equity and have that be fed into your deep learning system. Should you look at the last five days, six days, seven days, 
10 days. This is kind of a tunable knob that you have as you're building up this larger architecture. And this is in addition to the kind of tunable hyperparameters of that deep learning system. But this is going to affect what actually gets fed in. And then maybe at the other end, you're going to actually make a trade based off of what that deep learning system provides as output. But you want to have some threshold on maybe certainty before you actually execute that trade. Once again, this is a tunable parameter that normally the expert would have to set manually or try an exhaustive set of different options as they backtest this algorithm before they put it into production. What hyperparameter optimization or tuning a, a machine learning model or pipeline is, from our perspective, is all of these kind of nuisance parameters, these configuration files, all the kind of magic numbers that go into one of these pipelines that affect its eventual output, but have nothing to do with the actual domain expertise of understanding what the data is and the business value underneath it. And it seems to me as though, in terms of those tweakable, tunable parameters, I mean, there's so much to potentially adjust, right? I mean, what inputs you're, you're taking in in the first place, you know, maybe how many layers in, in, a, in a neural network, if, if that's sort of the approach you're leveraging, and so many factors in between. In addition to, you know, you had mentioned one factor we might want to consider in algorithmic trading is the rolling five-day, 10-day, three-day, we don't really know, but some kind of rolling average of the value of a certain equity or of the value of Japanese currency or whatever the case may be. We may just want to feed that in when we're making these kind of trades in this particular sector. It seems like the decision between three and 10 is just one of maybe 30 different sort of modular elements that you could kind of be adjusting. Is this borderline infinite in how many of these there are to tweak? Or in any given example, are there kind of maybe half a dozen or less major ones that are sort of most clearly going to influence your your outcomes? Because it seems like there's you know almost an infinite number of things you could adjust. Definitely. And this is where domain expertise plays an incredible role. Typical machine learning models have from one or two with something simple like a random forest up to maybe a few dozen tunable hyperparameters and a complex TensorFlow pipeline. That tends to be relatively well bounded and defined by the individual algorithm that you're deciding to apply to your problem. But these higher level parameters definitely can kind of grow arbitrarily large. But the domain expert is usually including that rolling average of that equity for a specific reason. And they're not necessarily going to include all the different currencies in the world if they're trading Apple stock. Maybe they'll include a few, but not all of them. And making that decision and doing that feature engineering is incredibly important, incredibly domain specific. And for now, humans tend to be the best at doing this type of problem. Actually finding the correct knobs and levers, the settings for all these individual parameters is something that computers and mathematics is much better at. Humans are great at being creative, but they're terrible at doing 20 dimensional optimization in their head. Yeah, I don't know anybody that's that can go beyond maybe you know, four-dimensional optimization in their head. Maybe there aren't many people that can do that beyond remarkably sim simple things. And typically, those people are probably better served actually applying that expertise and incredible intelligence to the model itself. As yes. Doing yep, yep. There's no reason for them to do the actual number crunching at all. So as mentioned, that's, that's sort of where the, the particular expertise comes into play is, is determining sort of the feature engineering at large. But the tweaking of do we use 10-day, do we use three-day, maybe how many layers of the network, maybe, you know, what are we 
set our you know our weights to in this particular neural network maybe these are sort of the tuning elements that as you're articulating machines are often better at now normally is it safe to say people are making those modular tweaks you know you give it a run adjust to a 3 day instead of a 10 day give it another run is it normally people making those adjustments in let's say most machine learning applications and and models evolving models today yeah. So there's a couple of different standard approaches that people tend to take. One is doing that very time-consuming and expensive manual fine-tuning. Once again, this kind of requires an expert to be in the loop. Typically, it finds local optima because not only is doing high-dimensional optimization hard, but finding global optima makes it even harder. You can maybe refine in on some kind of localized best configuration. Other approaches that people tend to take um, and are kind of advocated across TensorFlow or Scikit-Learn or all the kind of popular libraries are things like an exhaustive grid search, where you basically lay down a grid of possible configurations and try them all, and then at the very end, see which one performed the best. This is extremely time-consuming and expensive because it grows exponentially with the number of parameters that you're tuning, and it would be like trying to climb a mountain by stepping along every single lat-long option possible. And then after you've gone across the entire valley or mountain range, you go back and you see what the highest altitude was. Not necessarily the most efficient way to get to the peak. And there was a paper at NIPS in 2009 talking about how just randomly sampling parameters tends to work quite a bit more efficiently than something like this exhaustive grid search. But once again, this is like trying to climb a mountain by jumping out of an airplane and hoping you land at the peak. And then if you don't, just kind of getting in an airplane and randomly jumping again, not extremely efficient. And when accuracy or efficiency or expected returns on a trading algorithm are paramount to the business, you want to use a more sophisticated technique. And so it turns out this subfield of operations research called optimal learning or Bayesian optimization, or there's a bunch of different ways that people phrase it is a really efficient way to sample these time-consuming and expensive algorithms. And this is what primarily you folks are working on sort of day-to-day. I imagine to some degree this is what you were working on when you were with Yelp in advertising, was figuring out how do we optimize these models without trying every possible configuration for our pricing or every possible configuration for CPM or, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, go go into a little bit of what that looks like. You mentioned a couple kind of jargon e terms maybe there's one or two that you really like that are worth defining because they're making tangible progress in in real business applications we'll go into a little bit of this optimization technology and where this is headed and sort of making a difference definitely the whole concept behind optimal learning is making the most intelligent trade-off you can between exploration which is learning more about how all these parameters interact over what length scales how they combine to affect whatever objective you're shooting for, and exploitation, which is leveraging that historical information about how previous configurations have performed to really maximize that objective you're shooting for. So by trading off this exploration and exploitation, you're able to extremely efficiently sample this otherwise intractably large space and find these global optima. Got it. Yeah, and I, I've heard the terms exploration and exploitation before. The previous analogy, and maybe you have a better one, you've dropped a couple analogies today, which I certainly appreciate, is um, in the domain of gambling. Let's say maybe you have a, 
a particular slot machine that you're you're yanking the arm on it and you're seeing what shows up on the screen and maybe you're winning a little bit more than you're losing. So you really just kind of want to sit at this slot machine and keep putting in your, your 25 cents because in general, you're making 32. And so if you keep cranking away, you're going to be up. But there is a potential opportunity cost in not sort of testing out some of the other slot machines. And if, if you're in a big casino with 10 floors of these things, there's probably something better that you're not leveraging. I guess what you're getting at is that there, there is this ever-present opportunity cost, and we want to explore as much as we can without really losing the opportunity. Like with, with Yelp and advertising, maybe, you, know, you want to tinker with new ways to set up the, the advertising algorithms to garner higher revenue uh, and, and to deliver your result. But you don't want to do so much of that experimenting that you lose track of sort of your proven winners that are really, you know, going to pay payroll in five days. Definitely. And the idea behind this is these large machine learning pipelines tend to be very time consuming and expensive to evaluate different configurations. In that kind of classic multi-arm bandit analogy that you were drawing before with the slot machines, you can just go up to a slot machine, pull the lever, and you immediately see your output. But what if pulling that lever entailed spinning up a giant AWS cluster, and then 24 hours later, you get back some accuracy metric? You would need to be very efficient in which levers you pull. In addition to that, in the slot machine analogy, there's a discrete number of options to pick. Maybe if there's a large floor of slot machines, and you said maybe a 10-story building, you're looking in three dimensions at a bunch of discrete variables. But more often than not, in these machine learning algorithms, there's continuous variables you need to tune as well, like the learning rate of a gradient-boosted method or a deep learning system. And so now you're looking at, instead of three discrete dimensions, you're looking at 5, 10, 20 potentially continuous dimensions. And every single time you want to pull a lever of that slot machine, it could take thousands of dollars or dozens of hours to actually compute the result. And you need to be able to find that best slot machine in as few attempts as possible in order to maximize whatever eventual business value you're trying to get out of this model. That's the problem that we try to solve. Yeah, a lot more options, uh, a lot more risk of just trying things because trying implies a lot of expensive people using a lot of expensive time. As you said, you know, we might need a day or two to get a result out the other end. We only have so many days in a year. Uh, we only have so many hours that these people are going to work. Strategic thought is really wholly required. What, what are the fundamentals of this science of optimization? So when, when somebody, you know, there are new approaches now to maybe not just try everything and maybe not just randomly disperse attempts across various, you know, weights and options. Where, where, where are these new sort of approaches taking us now in terms of, you know, what, what this optimization science looks like in a real business case? Definitely. So a lot of the methods applied revolve around this kind of path of doing sequential model-based optimization. So I'll break that down. Sequential in the sense that you're leveraging historical information in order to make your next decision. Model-based in the sense that you're taking that historical information, all those previous configurations you've tried or different slot machines you tried in your analogy, and you're trying to build up a model for how all these parameters interact and what response surface you can expect in unsampled areas. Leverage that model in order to try to find the points that have maybe the highest probability of improvement or the highest expected improvement or the points that get you the most information in the information theoretic sense about that underlying system. 
you sample those and then repeat the process. This updates the model, which allows you to make an, a new decision, and you repeat. What we're building at SIGOPT is an ensemble of all of these different types of models. But in general, the science allows you to kind of take a specific model like a Gaussian process, a specific acquisition function, like expected improvement, and kind of go through this optimization loop to most efficiently find the best configuration to these complex systems. Got it. So to tie in an analogy that you use of sort of jumping off a plane onto a mountain and sort of seeing what your altitude is, maybe another analogy would be drilling for oil. You could try to drill everywhere. That's probably not going to work that well. You could randomly start drilling in places and then just sort of find another hole and randomly try that one until maybe you find one that's going to be good enough to suit your needs. Or maybe you could disperse some random tests, but be using that information to sort of garner a grander landscape picture of all the places you could drill. And given all the various features that you're finding in those various places where you're drilling, where might you want to try more attempts and what, what places are most likely to maybe have sort of the highest yields. So we're, we're sort of aiming to build, as you had said, build a model or a map as the random testing is happening so that we can have a better sense of all this opportunity space. Can we use this random testing to garner a great sense of where we should be drawing new samples from, where we should burn the next 24 hours and $1,000 of compute power to make that next attempt? Where are we going to point that cannon next? It sounds like maybe that oil analogy is onto a little something in terms of building the broader map of, of what's most likely to strike. Exactly. And that's actually, I mean, we're working with some oil and gas companies uh, currently, but some of the original research dating back to the 50s around what's called these kind of Krieging methods, which is one of these models that you can use, was actually based around mining for gold. Very similar to your analogy where you want to leverage these individual kind of pilot mines that you dig in order to try to figure out where's the most efficient place to place your actual mine. Got it. That's how we make the crossover into uh, the tuning analogy. All right. So that clarifies it a little bit. I think I've gone a little bit deep onto that one to, to hit the, the second question. But I know that the, the last question I planned on asking, Scott, um, was going to be around where you often see the low-hanging fruit um, in improving existing machine learning models. Some of the folks who are tuned in now may, whether it's in their marketing department or somewhere else, business intelligence or some various other application, be leveraging machine learning models on an ongoing basis. Or they may be aiming to build out such models to test a new advertising method, to test a way of interpreting you know, healthcare data, whatever the case may be for, for their given business. Where do you often see that sort of the easiest swings at improving the tuning and improving the results? You, you had to struggle a lot with this in the domain of hard sciences. You obviously had a lot of data to work with when you were working at Yelp for many years on these same kind of problems. Where do you often see that kind of low swinging opportunity here? I think there's two areas where you can kind of make immediate impact. One of them is by doing this kind of hyperparameter tuning or configuration tuning of these models. But beyond that, usually what we find when we work with various firms is people have a specific tool that they really enjoy using, whether that's something like logistic regression or a random forest or something like that. And a lot of these machine learning frameworks that have been coming out, whether it's something like scikit-learn or TensorFlow, provide the exact same interface between tools so that you can very readily try different models. If the only thing in your toolkit is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail, but maybe the screwdriver might work better in certain applications. So one thing that I would recommend people do is 
instead of just applying their favorite tool to every job, because it's becoming easier and easier to kind of hot swap different algorithms, maybe try an ensemble approach or go ahead and try that gradient boosted method if you're already using a random forest or whatever it may be. And you may see a significant uptick by just kind of upgrading the sophistication of your models. Just to clarify this and and drive this home, I I think that's fruitful advice. And and obviously the tools are sort of lending themselves more and more to taking this domain from a pure graduate school labs, black magic world into kind of more plug and play, usable, replaceable, you were talking about hot swapping models, uh, sort of a field. When you were working with the difficult problems in the hard sciences before you moved over to Yelp, would you talk to other people in the science field working on similar problems? Maybe our business audience could or should do something similar. Is it is that is a lot of that under wraps and it's difficult to have those conversations? My my own intuition would tell me if I'm going to try a bunch of new tools, let's say I really like whatever sort of variant of gradient descent or what have you tends to be my preference, you know, logistic regression or, or, or whatever. If I'm going to be moving into some new models that maybe aren't really what I am used to using, Maybe it would make sense to talk to somebody trying to optimize for something similar and see what's worked well for them. Is there any way to garner that kind of insight? Do people generally not share that kind of thing? Do you kind of have to go with the crapshoot of just trying whatever other models, you know, throw the screwdriver at it, throw the jackhammer at it, you know, or, or is there a way, to, a way to sort of cut down on what choices might be most likely to win? Definitely depends on the individual industry you're in. Some of the hedge funds we work with of are yeah. secretive. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, insurance companies tend to be maybe slightly less so. I guess the tools are making it easy enough that just trying a bunch of different things is becoming very possible and feasible. It's like a one line of code difference as cool. opposed to having to pull down a completely new library and compile something. And a lot of what it was back in the, the Wild West days of a, a decade or so ago. And so every problem is kind of sufficiently unique, I would say, that even one specific fraud use case might look very different than another fraud use case. And so a model that might work well in the first instance might actually perform relatively poorly in the second instance. So I would definitely recommend just kind of exploring around. It's becoming easier and easier to integrate these things. There's lots of great videos online. There's lots of great podcasts like this one kind of introducing these tools. And I would recommend if you've been using the same thing for, for many years, maybe try to, to look around at some, some of these other tools that have come out recently. And it might be a lot easier than you think. Sometimes it's only one line of code difference if you're already using one of these machine learning frameworks. And then all of a sudden, it can open up a lot of new possibilities for you. That's, that's a, do you find, Scott, being in this field for, for as long as you have now, do you find often that people do have their favorites and that that often is limiting, whether in academia or the business world where you know, even very sharp folks will tend to have one or two ways that they get it done. And, you know, they, they kind of run themselves into ruts. Is that relatively common with data scientists? I mean, I think that's common in almost any field where you have the way that you're comfortable working with something and it tends to work in general. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that a lot of these methods, it's becoming relatively trivial to, to try new things. The opportunity or the the cost to do it is maybe a lot lower than it is in another field. Whereas if you're doing oil and gas or something like that, changing the way that you drill oil wells could be extremely expensive yeah. to just try a different way. Hot swapping one line of code in Python could be a way to eke out some extra performance. So hopefully hopefully that proves handy for the folks who are tuned in now. I think the notion itself of, of tuning a model, I think, is a little bit more 
uh, clear, and, and we'll probably follow up to garner some additional examples to be using in the article. Scott, that's all the time that we had for today, but I very much appreciate you being here with us and sharing your insights in the Tech Emergence podcast. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence podcast, and thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives and top researchers and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com, where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category, as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes, or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks as always for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.